Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the podcast from the New Statesman that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week, we're talking about the BBC drama A Very English Scandal and the film On Chesil Beach. Anna has also watched the 2001 rom-com Kate and Leopold for the first time, so we'll be hearing about how that went later in the show. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. Thanks so much, listeners, for bearing with me as I took a week off last week. I'm feeling a lot better, so we're ready to roll again. But Caroline very handily did a kind of listener survey question last week, which a lot of people got back to. Yeah, lots and lots of you got in touch to give us your thoughts and tell us how you're enjoying the show or not enjoying it. I would like Everyone hated it. (laughs) I would like to personally congratulate the person who said that their biggest problem with the show was that the books we read are too, quote, female-centric. That was a highlight. Oh, go away. Sorry for that one listener, (laughs) but no. But no, people were overwhelmingly helpful and constructive. And there's lots of things from what you said that we want to implement. If you still want to have your say, the survey is still running. So it's you can get to it at seriouslypod.com forward slash survey. It only takes a couple of minutes. Loads of the questions are optional. So you can just click boxes and tell us what you like. Amazing. Thanks for sorting it, Caroline. So I'm feeling a little tired today. Last night I went to see Arctic Monkeys at the Royal Albert Hall in London, which was just an amazing gig. I was kind of worried that it wouldn't be worth it because this is a very kind of privileged wine, but I couldn't get a press ticket. And it's a charity, (laughs) it's a charity gig. So you can't be too gross about not getting a free press ticket to an expensive charity gig. Obviously, that's, that's just gross and lame. But I was like shall I buy tickets and it was really hard to get tickets and they all sold out super quickly so I managed to get one ticket and I was like "Ooh, do I go on my own like Mm. I knew loads of people going but do I I have to say goodbye to them and go and stand on my own to see Arctic Monkeys isn't that just going to be a bit sad and depressing so I wasn't sure when I got there I was like I don't know if this was worth it I was like sat in a box behind these two guys who were like absolutely raring to go like just (laughs) necking back the pints these two these two lads just going for it you know really shouting and whatever and I was like oh god this is going to be awful and then it was actually amazing it was so great we had like we were like sharing a box me and these guys became best of friends we're like right hanging out of the front of our bloody box amazing view 
and it was just great I was also kind of nervous because we talked about um how much more relaxed and loungy and loose this new Arctic Monkeys record is and especially because the gig was in the Royal Albert Hall I thought like oh is this going to be a bit of a sit-down affair are they not really going to go back to their old more you know furious music but really most of it was old stuff though they only played four tracks off the new record out of like 20 songs that they played and it was just like amazing they played from the Ritz to the Rubble which they haven't played since like 2011 or something they literally haven't done it live in about seven years and people were going mental like I was genuinely worried for some people's safety hanging out of those boxes (laughs) like it was incredible even if Alex Turner's kind of deliberately embarrassing persona kind of cast a long shadow over some of the rock songs because they do seem a little bit more pathetic (laughs) when he's Mm. doing this whole aging rock star thing but yeah I loved it I thought it was amazing so that's been that's been my interesting news this week that in a way makes me a bit sad because I was vaguely looking at like will the arctic monkeys tour in the hope that it would just be a playthrough of the new album because (laughs) I am obsessed with tranquility hotel basin casino that's so funny I'm completely space hotel and casino base is it base i can't get the words in the right order but yeah it's those four words in some order but um yeah i'm completely obsessed with it i listen to it at least three times a day and i would happily sit in a venue and listen to them just like play it through as as a piece of music the whole album well you might still be in luck because that was a kind of one-off gig like it's not really i don't know if it's going to be the same set list for their tour I wondered if it was maybe a bit of a homecoming gig for them because they haven't played in the UK for about mm. four years. And so whether because of that, they wanted to just like do a big kind of, you know, almost festival like sort of like best of set. Yeah. But I don't know. It could be it could be the exact same set on their tour. We'll have to see. Well, I imagine I'm in a very small minority. At I think that. so. Yeah. <laughs> so it might be that actually they are doing the commercially sensible thing and playing all of their old hits so that people will actually buy tickets yeah you know how um I mean I don't really go to gigs very much anymore but I had a period when I was like 17 18 when I went to a lot and yeah, it was always so annoying when you went to a strokes gig or something and they played like six songs in a row from the new album that you'd barely listened to so it was just like this boring intermission amidst all of the like awesome dancing you were doing to yeah. all of the other stuff totally no, it definitely it definitely wasn't like that at all. I mean, the moments where they played some of the new songs, you did kind of get like a little, um, like someone turned to me and was like, so what do you think of the new album? <laughs> right. Um, so that it was kind of a moment for people to play, like shrug and stuff. But yeah, also like one of the songs they played last night from the new album, um, Star Treatment, it was like the first time they'd ever played it live and people were really into it like there was a little cheer when he said I've I've played quiet rooms like this mm-hmm. before you know people kind of being like no we we love it but it felt it to me it felt like l- the loyalty of a of very keen you know obsessive fans not not the genuine kind of just like sheer joy that they then showed later when <laughs> some of the old hits started being played mm. so slightly I don't know. People like went mental for things like Brian Storm. Those were still clearly the fan favourites. So the first thing that we're going to talk about this week is a very English scandal, a BBC drama adapted by Russell T Davis from John Preston's book of the same name. 
It depicts the relationship between and subsequent scandal surrounding the British Liberal MP Jeremy Thorpe, here played by Hugh Grant, and his lover Norman Scott, played by Ben Whishaw. It's set in the late 1960s when homosexuality has only just been decriminalised. And I think there are some bits right at the beginning actually pre-homosexually being decriminalised, which really makes it hit home, you know, what a totally different context this crime is happening in compared to, you know, now. Yeah, so it's a, it's in three parts. And I'll st- from the off, what I love about this is that it didn't try to avoid being camp. Yes, I was really surprised by that. I was expecting, because it's a very serious and quite tragic story. You know, mm. it's, it's a real life story. So I don't think, and it's very, very well known in Britain. So I don't think it's a spoiler to say that just what happens is this MP is having gay relationships even though it's only just been decriminalised, it's a social taboo still. He doesn't. He wants to be prime minister one day, and he gets to a point where he thinks that the only way he can still realise his political ambitions is if he has his former lover killed, so that he can't mm. reveal what happens between them. If this all spirals out of control, and it ends up in this massive trial, mm-hmm. from which he's then acquitted, and but he his political career is essentially over. It's a really, really serious, tragic story. And I was so surprised when the credits for the first episode started and they were very deliberately, like, in the style of television of the period, really jaunty music, lots of... Hugh Grant, I think, does a good job in this, as Jeremy Thorpe, of showing all the different facets of him. But he definitely has a kind of winky, slightly leery side to him, which... I wasn't prepared for at all. So yeah, that really took me aback. Yeah, I think Hugh Grant's performance in this is just absolutely amazing. He's so deliberately villainous and camp and he's very, very charismatic the Mm. whole time, which, you know, one thing I also liked about this is that it doesn't actually encourage you to take sides. Like, obviously, we can all see that Jeremy Thorpe is the villain of this piece you know, that's clear, but it also encourages us to recontextualize and understand the, you know, intense internalized homophobia that might, you know, it's not even internalized homophobia, I guess it's just like fear of being judged and and shame that surrounds something like this. So there's really no cartoonish villains. And I say that knowing that Hugh Grant actually does give the performance really of a cartoonish villain, but in the context of how the drama functions, there are often moments where you're encouraged to root for that cartoonish villain. So it's yeah. it's ne- it's not like a retrial of anyone. I also think Thorpe himself was a bit like that, you know, from what I've read and seen of the man himself. He definitely had a, a kind of, oh, I'm the big old baddie, mm. ha, mm. ha, ha. Like that, that was something he did lean into. Mm. So I don't think it, it's a sort of extrapolation on Grant's part. Incidentally, I wanted to ask you, what is the name for this phase in Hugh Grant's career? Because we had the McConaissance when <laughs> Matthew McConaughey suddenly became someone who did serious acting. Mm-hmm. I feel like Hugh Grant, as has been said in a number of think pieces around the release of this piece, Hugh Grant has finally come out of rom-com jail and is now, quote, a proper actor again. What are we yeah. calling it? Well, it's funny, actually, because I kind of see it in those terms, you're right, but also in opposite terms in that this isn't a move from camp to serious. It's a really a move from serious to camp mm, yes. in that he's he's done, the, he's now doing a lot more 
you know, he's done kids movies. He's he's doing TV. He was he's, in Florence Foster Jenkins. He's in these, yeah, very, very silly comedies. Not, you know, dramatic comedies, but comedies. Mm. And he's doing these performances that are the opposite, really, of a romantic lead. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting. I've been calling it late stage Hugh Grant. But <laughs> yes. I'll take I'll take anything really. I the best I could come up with was a uh, Hugh Grant goes dark or something like that, <laughs> you know, Hugh Grant's dark side. But I have to say I Hugh Grant I, I find this narrative interesting of like Hugh Grant moves from rom-coms to villains because in a sense that is what happen is happening. But also at the very beginning of Hugh Grant's career, he was typecast as a villain pre four weddings. I mean, no one really has any kind of conception of pre four weddings Hugh Grant. But if you go through his credits, that was his vibe. And he has talked in, in early interviews, you you see him talking a lot about, oh, yeah, I was typecast as this villain. And I think he's always been good at bringing that villainous edge. And I think that's partly what what made him successful in rom-coms is the potential, you know, when a misunderstanding happens, mm. there's a side to him where, where you know, the, the wronged romantic lead woman is like, oh, wait, he was just a playboy all along. And then obviously in Bridget Jones, he's really good at being the charismatic, but like villainous, villainous playboy. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I I think you could advance a theory that uh, in the Me Too era, was not Hugh Grant a villain all along? Um, <laughs> yeah. Was he not, you know, gaslighting women left, right and centre as they tried that to just date him? That is think piece. Yeah, <laughs> come on, Caroline, get that one down. So yeah, he's he's just a delight, an absolute delight to to watch in this. And the whole thing has been made with that mischievous spirit in mind, I think. And it is very Russell T. Davis. Yes, so much. One thing that really interested me, which was something that was lingering in the back of my mind when I was watching it, was the portrayal of Norman Scott by Ben Whishaw, who plays this... He plays it very fey and yeah. very... You know, he he's... He's quite effeminate and very um very camp in a different way in this role and he's much more vulnerable and like visibly vulnerable and there's something about him that's like he's both very cute in this and there's also something like almost repulsive about him i think he's deliberately framed as kind of so needy and vulnerable that you're a bit like oh i struggle with this character mm. and he becomes a punchline a lot and a writer that i really like alim kiraj wrote in the in the independent um, I think he's basically saying like, why do we, why are camp men always the butt of the joke? Even in a show like this, that's very revisionist and accepting and, you know, rethinking a lot of our ideas about homosexuality and masculinity and stuff. Even here, a lot of the time, the butt of the joke is like Ben Wishaw in a silly coat. I find just it's yeah. just a really interesting perspective and so I would recommend reading that and we'll put it in the show notes yeah that's very true there's that whole sequence in the first episode when he first starts modeling when he's living in Dublin and an awful lot of it is just like, oh, look at Ben Wishaw. Isn't he such a stereotypical gay? He's like, mm. well, he's got his chest out, et cetera, et cetera. And, mm. you know, he's got a kind of fag hag best friend now and all of that. Yeah. And I do know, I know what you mean. It's very, very skillful acting on Wishaw's part because I found myself veering wildly between thinking, you know, I, Jeremy Thorpe was so horrible to this man. Like he just wanted mm. to be in a like loving relationship with him and he wanted to be codependent and spend time with you and you just left him alone all the time and like never spoke to him but still wanted to have sex with him but then yeah. I would but then I would also when Wishaw would like dial up the kind of but where's my national insurance card type stuff yeah I would think no actually 
this is quite destructive behavior i can see why this was really difficult yeah it's true and i've been, always been really drawn to performances like those we've joked a lot on this program about i'm but a child in these matters from bleak house and <laughs> yes. it's the same thing with these like catchphrases and it is camp and it is overblown and there is some humor in that and i think i will always find that kind of thing funny but there's something dark lingering behind the laughs isn't there and I, this this line from a limb in his piece he's like for the people who live their lives eschewing traditional masculinity and for whom campness isn't a humorous affectation, the fetishization by comedy of their behaviors, style or speech ultimately diminishes their experiences as a human being, which is like, wow, what a line that's mm. sort of, yeah, it just makes you totally reconsider. Um, and yeah, so there's a lot going on in this program. We've talked about it quite seriously, but it is also just a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. And I have, it's so refreshing to see something that, is getting the full heft of like the BBC drama thing, you know, a writer mm. like Russell T Davies, uh, director, it's directed by Stephen Frears. Mm. Uh, it's obviously a very expensive production because lots of it is filmed on location in the House of Commons and other places like that. And yet for the, what they've turned out isn't a kind of 19th century period drama about Gladstone or something. Mm it's this thing that shades between comedy and drama it focuses on gay relationships and it's trying to be funny absolutely it's it's really refreshing absolutely now we're going to talk about on chesil beach a film based on ian McEwan's novella of the same name it follows two young people on their wedding night trip to Chesil Beach in Dorset and tells the story of their relationship through flashbacks. In this adaptation, which was written by McEwen and directed by Dominic Cook, Florence is played by Saoirse Ronan and Edward by Billy Howell. So, Anna, did you read this when the book came out, I think, in about 2007? It sounds right. I was like a late teens, I think, when I read the, the book. Yeah, I, I just remember, because I worked in um, a bookshop at the time, and I remember it being like a huge controversial topic of conversation amongst colleagues because it got nominated and indeed, I think, shortlisted for the Booker Prize that right, year. Right, and it was so but slim. It, but it was so short. Mm. It was like 40,000 words or something. And so there was all of, <laughs> in the bookshop I worked in, because we had like a Booker table display, there were some people like, we shouldn't even put it on the table. It's not a novel. It's a prize for novels. <laughs> That's funny. That's so silly. <laughs> so I just remember that being my introduction to the book, being like booksellers' mm. feelings about its length. Petty, rages. Yeah, it is short because it is a very simple story mm. and it's got I think something that McEwen does in a lot of his novels atonement uh enduring love Saturday all of them have this it has one pivotal moment around which the whole rest of the story mm -hmm. revolves in atonement you know it's the scene in the library that everybody's seen mm -hmm. Kira Knightley spreading against the, book, against the bookshelf in this one it's the wedding night and it's the fact that these two young people, neither of whom really know anything about the physical realities of sex, like attempt to have sex on their wedding night. It's a really horrible experience and just everything falls apart. Yeah. Um, in the book, it's very, very clever the way that that one moment keeps coming back and everything else is sort of seen in relation to it. And you can do that in a book. You know, you can sum up the rest of somebody's life in five pages mm. and it doesn't seem weird. Whereas I think in a film adaptation, it's a bigger structural challenge. I agree. And I think the events of the of the novella essentially take place over one day 
really. Mm. You get like the contemporary narrative of current events from both perspectives of this newlywed couple. And it's, you know, just the evening of their honeymoon and everything else is like a flashback or a, a flash forward, like a memory kind of sparked by something at the dinner table or whatever, which again is slightly harder to do in that very gesturing way in a movie because you have to either be like, okay, we're committing to like a little flashback now or you have to do some sort of internal narration. And I think it's related to another problem of adapting a a book like this, which is that this is a book that's very much about internal monologues and it's about the gap between what people are thinking and what they're saying. Mm. And you get a narration of, you know, someone thinking I love you and not saying it you know and what what happens in between that space and how you get to feel something but not express it or or you know say something you don't feel and that's really tricky to do on film because even with the most skillful actors in the world you can't literally communicate something unspoken if it's any anything complex (laughs) so you know and they don't go for a cheesy voiceover in this film really which i'm pleased about but it does mean that there's a i think it's harder to to understand the motives of the camp of the characters in this film you don't understand why they get end up at this loggerheads where they can't meet in the middle at all it's harder to understand how they got to that point i think yeah and i think in the the book for me is a lot more about class Mm -hmm. and about how that informs the fact that um edward is from this sort of working class family uh his mum has some mental illness issues after having been like, had an accident with a train and so he's always like slightly struggled with like pity and shame around that and you know he's gone to UCL he hasn't gone to Oxbridge and he's very very proud of the fact that he got mm-hmm. a first and all of this whereas Florence is from I think aren't her parents Oxford dons? She's gone to Oxford. She's lived a really privileged life. She wants to be a classical musician. And the whole point of the novel for me was the fact that they were both equally unprepared from those two different walks of life for what marriage would mean. Mm. But also they found it really difficult to find common ground in their lack of knowledge because they came from it from two totally different places. Mm. And I I don't know whether the film dwelt enough on their differences mm-hmm. for that to really come across. And overall, I was really looking forward to this film because I like the book and I find Ian McEwan's work generally has worked really well on screen. Like Atonement, I think, is a triumph of a film. Of course, starring a younger Saoirse Ronan in one of her bit first major parts. But this really didn't work for me. Yeah, it didn't work for me either. And there were mo- there were like specific moments that failed in like a very literal way for me. So, for example, in the book, you can read a passage that's like, oh, Edward started kissing her and Florence wanted it to end. She was so stressed. She hated it. Everything about it was disgusting to her. She wanted it to end, but she didn't know how to say that. So instead she said, oh, shall we move to the bed? Mm. And like you're like okay fine I get I understand how we got from A to B here whereas in the film when she's like cringing a bit in the kiss but you can't you can't really tell if it's like a good kiss or a bad kiss because he's enjoying it and then she's suddenly like let's move to the bed I think if I hadn't read the book I'd be a bit like hang on I don't understand what's happening here or why and maybe that's a valid way to feel um you know just as valid a way to feel because 
that's probably how it feels for Edward in that moment. He's like, what the hell is going on? Don't really understand. But yes, so things like that fail for me. And then just as a larger project, I, I just didn't really understand what it was trying to achieve. Whereas I felt like the book was so good in giving you an ama- a young woman's interiority. I thought it was just like mm. a great success based off that alone. And you don't get that so much in the film. So I struggled with what it was for. <laughs> no, exactly. And also one of my big, big problems with it is the decision that they would keep the same actors and just use prosthetics and makeup to show them aging. Because yeah. it does flash forward, as you say, like you see what happens, you know, after the disastrous wedding night, uh, right up to, I think, is it 25 or even 30 years mm. later? It's just impossible to concentrate on how you're supposed to be feeling in what's meant to be a very moving scene when Saoirse Ronan is wearing like a full old lady's face Yeah, it's so mask. bad. It's like it's, the worst kind. And also they don't have the phys- the right physicality. And it's like, no. to, it's not fair to actually ask people that young to try and play that old. Do you know what I mean? No. It's just, it you doesn't just, work. If, if you feel that you have to show the forward flashes in detail Recast then you it. do you do what you do it they did in atonement where you know Saoirse played young Bryony mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember who played um, Vanessa Redgrave Vanessa Redgrave played old Bryony and then there was someone else in the middle was it um, Romola Garay that sounds about like the I right kind was, of person but I don't know yeah I think it was her <laughs> yeah so old, Vanessa Redgrave was obviously perfect as because and mm. I remember thinking when I saw Atonement how well that worked because they'd given her the same haircut mm. that Saoirse Ronan had, age like ten or something. Mm. So you really felt like you could see the little girl mm. that she'd become. But obviously, she's a great actress and she has all of the mannerisms associated mm. with her actual age. Mm. Whereas this just it got almost a bit pantomime. It was really panto, really really silly, and the, also the film would have worked, I think, so much better had they not even bothered to then explore mm. that because you don't really need to know what happens after the, as long as you know that you know. Spoiler alert: it ruins their relationship. As long as you understand that it ruins their relationship for life, you don't need to see what what became of them. I don't think. I don't think that's really mm-hmm. a necessary part of the story. I also yeah. just feel like. I really struggled. I'm I'm not going to articulate myself super well on this, but um, I felt they played up of something that's very, very slight in the novel. There's like one sentence that suggests that Florence was maybe abused by her father, yeah. but it's very, very vague. And I kind of struggle with the idea that in order for Florence to be a young newlywed in 1960-whatever and have, you know, an extreme shame and or fear of sex or just to to be repulsed and to not want to have sex I kind of struggle with the idea that as an audience we need like a reason we need to be like oh she's frigid because of the sexual assault she experienced Mm. as a child and that and like obviously that doesn't mean that I want to see less women who've experienced sexual assault (laughs) on screen necessarily it just felt like a kind of cheap little like I just don't think we needed it like yeah. you can wander as an audience you can wander like oh maybe she had a traumatic experience as probably the vast majority of yeah, women I was did say, in maybe, the maybe 60s. she had multiple many traumatic experiences yeah. as lots of women still do and exactly. it attitude to sex yeah it felt way too glib and easy like especially cuz i I, that annoyed me so much that I actually went and like looked for what Ian McEwan had said about mm-hmm. this. And I found an interview where he said that in earlier drafts of the book, he did have 
the assault thing more explicitly. Mm. But then by the end, he decided that he didn't want it to be such a neat an obvious parallel and he, he there was a quote in an interview where he said something like um it's there for some people if that's how they read it but other people won't notice it at all yeah and, and that's, that's what i like about I it because it to be. i think you can just be a person in the world and be freaked out in sexual experiences like mm. obviously especially if it's like your wedding night and you've never had sex before and it's meant to be the rest of your life and it's meant to be like incredible like there are so many reasons why it, that sexual encounter has so much pressure on it and could so easily all go wrong and yeah I just felt it like it was a little bit like pathologizing and a little bit like oh yeah of course she's not like a normal woman because she's afraid of sex she's like a woman who's experienced a huge trauma also I felt it did a disservice to Samuel West who is an actor I like a lot who plays her father so horrible and he was made so horrible and most of his horribleness was cited in his moustache yeah that's true. I felt like they gave him the moustache of a sexual predator which I don't oh, think was Caroline, very nice of them spot on <laughs> so true um, but anyway I, I did just want to say that um I do think it is possible to do stories like this about longing and like internal external differences well because we have one in the form of the remains of the day yeah that's true that is I think the complete antithesis to this in that it's about a maybe relationship between two people one of whom is very repressed for reasons that we never really get into or know. And you can absolutely see on Anthony Hopkins's face what he is thinking versus mm, what he's saying. And like Moonlight. Yeah, absolutely. We have we have films that do do this functionally and well. Uh, this is just not one of those films. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So last week, Caroline, or well, two weeks ago, if we're being honest with ourselves, but at some point in time, Caroline suggested that I watch Kate and Leopold, uh, a rom-com starring Meg Ryan and Hugh Jackman. I really loved, by the way, that if you Google this movie and the Wikipedia pulls a description, they're like, Kate, Meg Ryan, working woman, New York, blah, 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 blah. She then meets Leopold, an 1800s, and like they don't do brackets Hugh Jackman. So in my mind, <laughs> Leopold's just a real man from the 1800s that they like brought in for this film. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it's, I mean, the premise is just as ridiculous as it sounds. We kind of open with this guy, Stuart, who is Kate's fairly recently ex-boyfriend, just stumbling across a route into the past as you do uh mm-hmm. and he ends up in what year are we talking 18 it's it's meant to be the 1860s i think okay so i'm not exactly sure but it's like latter part of the 19th century yeah and he stumbled into some kind of like on the street debate of things and um yeah sees leopold on the street goes back leopold basically escapes back into the future with him um ends up at Stuart's place Kate desperately trying to get hold of Stuart also ends back up back there and it's just like the three of them plus Stuart's massive dog um <laughs> and then you know meet cute occurs rom-com begins it's a it's a hilarious premise it is yeah and it is totally ridiculous but for some reason i really really like this film yeah i've i think it's really charming and i first watched it when i was 
I think I was like up at university when most other people weren't for some like thesis research thing or something. So I like didn't have any friends to hang out with and there was nothing to do apart from go to the library. Mm. And I still had one of those. Did you ever have a love film subscription where they like send yeah. you discs Wasn't in the Wasn't that what post? Netflix was to begin with? Yeah. So there was a UK one called Love Film. Ah. And you just... I, th- I think I even had it set up where you added a load of movies that you were vaguely interested in seeing and then it would send you either those what was films available. <laughs> or ones that were a bit like it. Yeah, it's like we didn't have this in your size, so here's a random rock up. Because yeah, I'd definitely never heard of this film before, so I hadn't added it to the queue. But they just it just randomly turned up in the post and I watched it and I was like, this is the best thing I think ever. it's like a guilty pleasure amongst a lot of women our age, maybe, who like mm. saw it in their... T- it, actually, weirdly, what it reminded me of is one of my favourite films. And I don't know if it was just the presence of the big dog but it reminded me of the um of the john hughes 101 dalmatians oh yeah movie from like yeah, 92 yeah. or something i don't even know which is like just a silly rom com version of the 101 dalmatians story that's kind of a bit more about roger and anita and mm-hmm. it's really nice and it's got obviously glenn close as credit of so it's a kids movie and there's kate and leopold i think maybe it could be described as a kids movie like yeah, I think so. It has a set piece in Central Park where he like chases a mugger on a horse. Yeah. You know, it's got some sort of like mild peril action as yeah. well as... There's like, like a whole scene uh, where he refuses to pick up a piece of poo. Mm-hmm. Like that's the level that we're at. And you can't, because of that, you can't hate it. It's kind of like charming despite it's like, I think if we sat down and discussed this seriously as we are want to do on this podcast, we would probably talk about how it's a pretty conservative plot right oh god so much so and it also having I rewatched it having not seen it for a couple of years I rewatched it before we recorded this and there are some like disturbing themes that I wasn't really aware of <laughs> yeah a few years exactly ago. first is like how it, so it, it's amusing how Bradley Whitford character who plays Kate's boss is sort of he 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 is responsible for like all the ills of capitalism Mm. Leopold at one point calls him a serpent or something yeah so he's he's the devil but that gets tied in with the fact that there's a kind of overtone of like Kate works and she shouldn't work absolutely and they they play it off as a kind of funny joke like the the part of the unlikely coupledom aspect is that Leopold's very like ah research that might be a suitable job for a woman, mm. in fact. And she's like, what are you talking about? She's a career woman, you know. But that's undermined by the final happy ever after ending, which is, I mean, what happens basically is that she accepts a serious promotion at work. And then like mid-speech, as we all do our like acceptance speeches for our <laughs> promotions, um, <laughs> she she you know, realises that actually this doesn't make her happy and what would make her happy is going to 1860 with Leopold. and um, Yeah, and like it's living kind a of, life of aristocratic leisure. Yeah, it's a bit... Wearing a corset. an anti-feminist message, if we're being honest, isn't it? Totally. So yeah, there's there's that part of it. But then there's also, there's the whole middle of the film is sort of this one weekend where they they sort of do things at Leopold's pace because mm. he finds the modern world very like confusing and frenetic so they you know just go for like walks in the park and like mm. wander around the city and have a nice time and obviously all things that people in the present day do all of the time and enjoy but the film frames it as like 
And indeed, Kate even has a line where she says like, oh, it's been just like, you know, must be like what your life is like in the 1860s this weekend. It's been so nice. Want to do more of that? It's like, "Mm, you can do those things with your current life with all of the convenience of like good sanitation and political liberation. Please, give up your sanitary products. (laughs) I know. So that never bothered me before. But now I couldn't help but think that like, well, I don't understand why the past is better obviously there's all of the extra baggage when you talk about time travel in pop culture that obviously it's fine because she's like a privileged white woman in new york Mm -hmm. you know people of color not so into time travel for obvious reasons yeah but it's still it's still like totally baffling and they they never give you enough like sure she has a nice time with leopold but they never give you enough motivation for her (laughs) to give up her entire life in modern society and go to the 1860s (laughs) You could also, I choose not to interpret it like this because I think Hugh Jackman is generally a good thing. Mm. But, and so therefore I'm well disposed towards his characters. But you definitely could interpret it as like, the film plays it as if Leopold is this like extraordinary romancer who just sweeps her off Mm. her feet. Whereas actually he just treats her with basic decency. Yeah, You know, like he's just attentive and makes plans for her and doesn't mm-hmm. expect her to do any of the mm-hmm. emotional labour, you know? Mm-hmm. But he, um, like, fundamentally doesn't understand her on a lot of levels no. and never can because he's but from a just, different time period. But it just makes you... what The the implication is that, like, every other person Kate has ever yeah, dated... could never has, possibly treat her with basic respect. ...has been a total scumbag. Yeah. And it's like, that's horrible. This woman has basically been, like, gaslighted her whole life. Yeah. And then this one, like, vaguely courteous person turns up. She's like, yeah, sure, I'll move to the past with you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. sorry i'm now trashing one of my own favorite movies but anyway all of this re-emerged as i was re-watching it uh, yeah and like you can't not enjoy watching the film i think it's you know it's got enough there to um to make it just like a beautifully enjoyable watching experience even if even as you're screaming at it in frustration it's the kind of film that you would recommend like getting people around and having some popcorn and like giving your own sarcastic commentary to 100 percent. yes absolutely and I also highly recommend it. I think you said initially when I recommended this to you that you were going to watch it like with a huge bowl of pasta mm. like on a rainy evening. It's that kind yeah, of film, exactly. I think. Exactly. So for next week, we are going to have a go at another podcast, which is something we haven't done for a while. No, and I lo- I've been really uh, hungry for a true crime podcast of late. So I'm hoping this is going to fill that gap. Well, so I... I write so much about podcasts these days and I've written so much about like the bad ethics of true crime podcasts mm-hmm. that I've basically stopped listening to them because I can't like, endorse it. Well, I can't hear them without thinking of all of the like, even if the one that I happen to be listening to isn't doing any of the bad things. I still, I don't know, I've just like got a complex about this now, but, mm-hmm. but this is why it's good that I'm going to do this. So we're going to listen to West Cork, which is an Audible original true crime podcast. I don't really know much more about it other than that it's had some really positive reviews and it is set in Ireland. Cool. Well, I'm excited. Thanks so much for rec- for digging out of the recommends. I'm thrilled to be doing it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? 
We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. Thank you.